0: So, you know, Franklin is probably the first person to found a university and then cut it completely out of its will. (laughs) He founded the Philadelphia Academy, which went on to become the University of Pennsylvania. He had hoped it would be a working class school. He wanted practical education. And when he came back um, from Paris after the Revolutionary War, you know, he discovered it had become a real finishing school for the gentry of Philadelphia. Oh my gosh, they were teaching Latin and Greek. You know, they weren't teaching accounting or public speaking. I'm Chris Hill, and that's Michael Meyer, a professor of English at the University of Pittsburgh and author of the new book, Benjamin Franklin's Last Bet, The Favorite Founder's Divisive Death, Enduring Afterlife and Blueprint for American Prosperity. Robert Brokamp talked with Meyer about the Founding Fathers' mistakes and successes in estate planning, how Franklin popularized microfinance and open source technology, and the power of small anonymous donations.
1: So Ben Franklin was a lot of things. Founding father, politician, postmaster, author, inventor, kite flyer. He also became relatively wealthy. So where did most of his wealth come from? He certainly wasn't born into it and unlike some founding fathers, he didn't marry into it.
0: That's right. And I thought his wealth would have come from his many inventions, but in fact it didn't. And you know Franklin today is often cited as a founder of the open source movement because although there weren't patents while he was alive. He could have had exclusive commercial licenses on his many inventions. But instead, he said, just as I benefited from the technology of others, um, I want others to benefit from my technology as well. Franklin was a bit of an inveterate borrower, as we're going to see, as we, we talk about his last will and testament, whose ideas largely came from somebody else, um, just like many of his famous sayings originated with someone else. But to go back to your question, you know, he, he was a very good business person. Um, he... He married well, and we'll talk about his wife, Deborah, in a l- little bit as well, because he did benefit from the property her parents owned when he started his printing shop. But it was really his press from which he derived most of his money. Um, not only did he benefit from, as deputy postmaster, he could enjoy free postage so he could send Poor Richard's Almanac and his Pennsylvania Gazette up and down the eastern seaboard. Um, But as he retired at age 42 to devote himself to a life of philanthropy, as he called it, and science, um, he also started franchising printing shops up and down the seaboard as well. And so he benefited from that. And that's how he accrued a lot of his money.
1: The title of your book says that he had a divisive death. What was divisive about his demise? Half of the country
0: didn't seem to mourn him that much, you know, that our own Congress, when they met in New York City a few days after his death, were really divided on how they should show their respects to this person. Um, Thomas Jefferson, who was then Secretary of State, had asked President Washington to wear a badge of mourning, you know, a black armband and Washington said, well, Franklin didn't die in office and he didn't die on the battlefield. So I don't wanna set that precedent. Uh, Congress, the House of Representatives decided to wear those badges of mourning. The Senate, under the aegis of John Adams and the vice president and Franklin's sort of nemesis, uh, said they wouldn't be doing that. And so, you know, I was surprised to find, too, in the beginning of the book talks about this, that there was no state funeral for Benjamin Franklin. That still just flabbergasts me. And his official eulogy wasn't read till nearly a year had passed since his de- 1790 death.
1: Interesting. Um, So a lot of your book is about his estate plan. Of course, when you talk about estate plans, you start with families. So what was uh, Franklin's family like?
0: It was also quite fractured. You know, I think that just like his family, his, his reputation in America had sort of fissured along lines of was he too close to France because he had spent nine years during the Revolutionary War, you know, raising men, material and money for the for the rebel cause. Um, His own family was fractured through that war as well. You know, for the Franklins, it was was a civil war, I should say, at the same time. And his his firstborn son, William, who was illegitimate, had been raised to be his heir apparent. You mentioned Franklin the Kite Flyer. It was probably William, actually, who held the string uh, in that pony shed or that paddock of, of the Northern Liberties in Philadelphia when Franklin touched his knuckle to the string and felt that charge of electricity in his famous experiment. He and William had fallen out. Uh, Frank, you know, William was a loyalist during the war, was actually imprisoned for many years, and Frank, uh, Washington would not parole him even to be there for the death of William's wife. So William ends up living in London on a dead-end street near Trafalgar Square, and Franklin makes sure that William receives nothing of his estate and even lists him first in the will that he gets all the land that he attempted to deprive me of, which was in his term was nothing. Yes. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, there was, there was William, and then there was his daughter, Sally, um, who he, he loved a great deal, but also never let her journey with him to London and to Paris, the way he allowed William to go. And we'll talk about that. There was Sally comes back and has her revenge with her bequest. And then there's two grandsons. There's Temple, who's William's illegitimate son, illegitimacy definitely ran in the Franklin family, who's a bit of a cad and a a layabout um, and had fallen out of favor. You know, he sort of ingratiated himself. He was Franklin's private secretary when he was in Paris, but Adams and Jefferson didn't see much in him and didn't see a real future for Temple. And then there's Sally's young son, Benny, who was primary school age when he went with his grandfather to Paris. And it's really on, Benny is, is the person that Franklin pins most of his hopes. And, and he's the one that he says, you know what? I made a big mistake. I did not train Temple and Sally and William in my trade. But to Benny, I'm going to train him to become a printer. And we really see this, you know, that this, this turn in Franklin's life as he ages, that he even begins his will for all his accomplishments. You know, he begins the will, I, Benjamin Franklin, printer. He's really staking that I'm, I'm a tradesperson, I'm a, I'm, I'm a skilled laborer, and I'm different than the other founders, and I don't want my family to fall, follow their paths rather than follow mine.
1: And so part of it was basically putting some conditions in mm-hmm. his last will and testament. So it wasn't, he didn't just give stuff away, there were some conditions on what people either had to do or what they could do with what they inherited.
0: That's right. And I think, you know, Franklin was aware that his will would be published. You know, he was the first American celebrity. He was certainly the most famous American to die when he did at that point in 1790. Um, And so, you know, to each of these bequests he gives his kids, there's a condition attached to them. So to Sally, for example... This is an era of laws of coverture where a married woman is no more free than a dependent child. And in her bequest, he says clearly, this is meant for you and yourself alone. This is no disrespect for your husband, Richard, but I want you to have an an, an income independent of a man. He also gives Sally the most precious item in his estate, which is a portrait of King Louis XVI ringed by diamonds. And he tells Sally that whatever you do, don't take these diamonds off and fashion them into jewelry because that's wasteful. Now, what he thought a mother of seven was going to do with you know, a portrait of the, ki- the French king, especially one that was about to be beheaded, um, would, you know, I don't know what he thought she would do with that, but Sally sort of went around in a sneaky way. I like what she did. She started about a year after Franklin dies, you see in, in the Philadelphia newspaper, notices that the Franklin house is for rent. And then you start following the trail and it Sally was selling off individual diamonds from the portrait so she could finance her first trip abroad. And she goes to London for a period of over two years, including have her, her portrait painted for the first time. It's the only image we know of her to his layabout, you know, no good uh, grandson temple. He says, I'm giving you all my papers in hopes that you'll collate them into an edited edition and you'll make a name for yourself and you'll have your own career free of patronage. I don't want you badgering politicians for your posts. Um, But you know, Temple, Napoleon comes to power. There's a revolution, Napoleon comes to power. A lot happens in those years, but it takes Temple, you know, nearly 30 years for those papers to be edited and collated and put out. So I think people's suspicions about Temple were right on. And then to Benny, his grandson, you know, he gives him his printing press and he says, I'm giving you, what to me emotionally is the most important of all my items, which is my trade, and I expect you to go forth and use it. And it's actually Benny that moves into Franklin's former newspaper shop and takes over his former newspaper and becomes a real muckraker. You know that he was he was calling out President Washington for owning slaves, for example. You're the, you're supposed to be the disciple of liberty, and look at what your behavior um, and. You know, his detractors started calling him Lightning Rod Jr. And in fact, I was shocked to learn that the first American prosecuted under the Alien and Sedition Acts was Benjamin Franklin's grandson, Benny, for the print for his, his um, you know, his diatribes against the Federalists and President Washington.
1: One aspect of his will highlighted his, um, shall so we say, complicated relationship to slavery. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that.
0: Franklin both benefited from and opposed slavery for much of his life. You know, early on as a printer, he would print notices for runaway enslaved people, for auctions of enslaved people in in Philadelphia. At the same time, he published the first abolitionist tracts against slavery uh, in Philadelphia, actually in, in the entire colonies. He and his family themselves owned up to seven human beings uh, Franklin called them servants, which I think was typical of urban Americans at that time. Um, and again, this was news to me because growing up in Minnesota, I'm a northern, you know, American. It was always well, slavery is something that happened elsewhere. That happened in the South, and you realize no, um, enslaved people were held throughout the big cities on the eastern coast. So. Franklin, you know, later in his life has a major about face. He befriends a lot of leading abolitionists, including Granville Sharp when he's when he's working in London and then in Paris, too, because France had abolished slavery before any other country um, or was about to, I should say, at that time. Um, And Franklin has a massive about face. And when he comes back to Philadelphia after the Revolutionary War was finished and he's there for the Constitutional Convention, it's Franklin actually who is ready to propose an amendment banning the slave trade. And his leading his fellow abolitionists in Philadelphia said, no, it's not time for that. Um, It's too contentious right now. Instead, after the Constitution was ratified, Franklin presented the first ever petition to ban the slave trade in front to the Senate. Um, And and the House of Representatives, the House of Representatives actually considered it. They put it to committee. Uh, The Senate shouted it down. Another reason his death was quite divisive with people that here you have someone who talked about compromise during the Constitutional Convention. And here he is now, um, you know, sort of appealing against the very compact that he had that he had helped to ratify. Franklin died as the president of the Pennsylvania Society for the Abolition of Slavery. Um, It was probably an honorific title. In the book, I make very clear. I don't think Franklin did. uh, I can't say he took the actions that other governors and other abolitionists did in, in the United States at that time. But he did make sure in his will, after... The other people he had held had either died or run away without being formally freed by him. In his will, um, his son-in-law, Sally's husband, owed him a great deal of money. And he said, that debt is forgiven if upon my death you release uh, your, what he called, your servant. Um, and the man did. And so, you know, in the book, I say that Franklin finally freed his first slave, but it wasn't a human being who he had owned. <laughs>
1: So let's move on to Franklin's uh, last bet, as you call it, involving bequests to Boston and Philadelphia. Tell us about those.
0: So, you know, Franklin is probably the first person to found a university and then cut it completely out of its will. (laughs) He founded the Philadelphia Academy, which went on to become the University of Pennsylvania. He had hoped it would be a working class school. He wanted practical education. And when he came back um, from Paris after the Revolutionary War, you know, he discovered it had become a real finishing school for the gentry of Philadelphia. Oh, my gosh, they were teaching Latin and Greek. You know, they weren't teaching accounting or public speaking. Uh, He was really upset about this. And he was upset, too, I think, at the Constitutional, I shouldn't say I think, I know, at the Constitutional Convention, how the lawyers had sort of carried the day. And he felt different than your George Washingtons and your James Madisons and your Thomas Jeffersons, who had huge plantations and profited off of slavery. He had made the turn at that point. And so Franklin said, you know, what's really important for our republic to survive is that working class people have to have a voice in it. How are we going to ensure there's more people like me and less people like John Adams, a lawyer, um, and George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, et cetera? And so he remembered there was a French admirer of Franklin's who wrote a satirical essay and had sent it to him. And it was all about the power of compound interest. And in this essay, instead of poor Richard, it was about a man named Fortunate Richard. And Fortunate Richard is told by his grandfather, just put a little bit of money in an account and watch it accrue with compound interest. And after 100 years, you can give it away to charity. And then keep some of it back and give it away again, 200 years, 300 years. So in this essay, the man decides, you know, he's going to uh, create training schools for women so women can join the workforce. He's going to create a, a European bank um, so European countries won't go to war. He's going to create libraries, et cetera, et cetera. Franklin, when he comes back to Philadelphia, remembers this essay and he thinks, you know what, I'm going to borrow that idea and change my will. And he actually puts in his will, he says, i to my family. I'm giving a large portion of my estate to an idea that you may find distasteful because the money's not going to you. But to me, it's very important. And in in this codicil he added 10 months before he died, he takes 2,000 pounds, the British dollar was not yet official currency, uh, but he takes this money and he puts it in two pots. And one goes to the city of Boston, 1,000 pounds sterling. One goes to the city of Philadelphia, 1,000 pounds sterling. Boston, his hometown where he was born, Philadelphia, the town to which he ran away and broke his own indentured servitude and found his fortune. And he says what this money is going to do, he essentially creates microfinance because what this money is going to do is be lent in small amounts to apprentices who want to open their own businesses. They're going to repay it in 10 years at 5% annually, below market rate at the time. And with that money, you know, the principal, the, 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 the seeding fund, as he called it, the principal will accrue and accrue and we can lend more money to more craftspeople. And so he really wanted to fund the next generation of carpenters and printers and saddlers and glaziers and masons and so forth with the hopes that they would then turn to public service and have a voice in the American republic.
1: Uh, well, you pointed it out in your book how that didn't quite work out. I mean, uh, I think you, you cited a survey that said about half of Americans consider themselves working class, but only 2% of Congress has had that type of uh, background. Um, but talking about those, what happened over the next 200 years, which is really the story of the book, and it is a fascinating story because it's really the history of the American economy, the history of finance in America, the history of how our labor market changes, Um, So definitely read the book, but I would love for you to highlight one good thing each city did with the money and maybe one mistake they each made.
0: Well, I'm glad you mentioned the 200 year part. I forgot to say that, that he's so ambitious that it's not just lending money to, you know, trades for 10 years. It's going to last for 200 years. That's how ambitious he is. He's like ensuring that he's going to keep his name in the headlines. And this is at a time when the demise of America certainly seemed more certain than its success. And this is two years before the New York Stock Exchange opens um, you know, this is two years before the dollar is made official currency. So, Franklin, is, there's a lot of wishful thinking involved here. And further to that point, to get to what the cities did well, uh, you know, he also expected that kindly people in each city would manage this loan fund for free. With they would have oversight over it and make sure that people were getting their money. You know, in the book, it's set up as a race because Philadelphia and Boston did keep an eye on each other and how much money each one was accruing and how many loans each city was making. These are very different cities anyway. Philadelphia is diverse, it's a working port, it's um, the center of finance at that time and publishing and business. And Boston is very homogeneous and known more for its academies and for its churches. Um, And so to go back to your question, which is excellent, you know, Philadelphia, I think the best thing they did is they kept the money in play. They tried to honor Franklin's wishes and they kept making these loans even through the War of 1812 and the Capitol moving to D.C. and the opening of the Erie Canal and the Industrial Revolution where apprentices and tradespeople are falling, you know, by the wayside and on and on and on. Boston, on the other hand, a city that, in the book I recount this, is busy inventing the mutual fund, is busy inventing the investment bank, Um, they decide, you know what, it's not working out. Franklin's idea isn't going to allow any money to be left over for future generations to use. And so we're going to actually take it away from working class tradespeople and we're going to put it in an investment bank and get a guaranteed return. And so there's very different, you know, and people always ask me like, who do you think did a better job of managing the money? It depends, you know, again, like was the idea to to start as many small businesses as possible or was the idea to let the money accrue as largely as possible so the citizens of Boston and Philadelphia at the end of 200 years could cash it out and build something to benefit the people of those cities.
1: Any mistakes you'd like to highlight that each city made?
0: <laughs> There's always bad investments. Um, philadelphia <laughs> It's funny, current Philadelphians when they read this book, including city officials, will say, well, we're just as corrupt, you know, our, our city uh, administration is just as dysfunctional as it was in Franklin's time. Philadelphia, you know, I think the mistake they made is they, they grouped Franklin's loans or this bequest in with the dozens, if not hundreds of other bequests that people had left. You know, um, money to be left for widows to for winter soup or fuel or whatnot. Uh, yellow fever victims for their uh, you know recuperation. And you can still—it's a public record. You can still look at the annual report of these funds that have been on the books. You know, there's well over hundred of them. So they didn't manage it carefully. They didn't have a dedicated person. It was a city treasurer that was overseeing it, and that city treasurer made some very bad investments um, when they did try to emulate Boston's model. And they didn't realize that some of the things in which they were investing were, you know, basically controlled by Philadelphia's equivalent of Tammany Hall. You know, they were machine backed uh, pyramid schemes in many ways. And so the money took a step backward. Boston, I think their great failure was their lack of imagination. There was one person that managed the fund for nearly six decades Um, He tucked it safely into an investment bank, and it was only when a second person, I think he's one of the heroes of the book, takes over its management where he says, you know what, what Franklin called tradespeople or apprentices, nowadays we could consider medical students in Boston, right? They're apprenticing to open their own businesses and hang a shingle. And so there's a series of court cases that happen, um, which I think are really interesting to to read because it's people reimagining the funder's wishes, which is something that, you know, estates have to deal with all the time, you know, buyer beware what you put in your will and your instructions, because future generations might say, well, we can interpret that differently. And here's what we can do with it. But in the end, I I think the biggest mistake and the best thing each city did was they tried to adhere to Franklin's wishes, but his wishes were not crystal clear what the end game should be. You know, were you going for the now or were you going for the 200 year payout?
1: So we've been talking about Franklin's last will and testament. Unfortunately, the majority of Americans don't even have a will, let alone a, a comprehensive estate plan. So what lessons can the typical American take away from Franklin's last will and testament? And and maybe did it change at all how you thought about your own legacy?
0: It did. I mean, the big lesson is like he, again, he, he, he expected people to manage this endowment or this bequest for free. And that was a mistake. Um, it's nowadays we have professional financial planners and estate managers so if you have a large amount of money I would absolutely say be as specific as you can about who's your executor and who's the estate manager the other thing that Franklin did is I think he put too many restrictions on how his money was going to be used and I should say that Carnegie and Rockefeller and and the Fords and these different foundations that came up 100 years after his death were very aware of this Um, you know the tax code was eventually changed in our country. So you could say the reason your, philo- your philanthropy exists is to benefit humankind. That's a viable reason these days. And it was the Guggenheim Foundation that first attempted to, to make that change. Franklin had all sorts of restrictions on who could use his money, who could benefit his, from his money. You had to be 25, at least 25 years old. You had to at least be married because he was 25 when he went into a common law union with his wife, Deborah. Um, You had to be a man in the beginning. He didn't put any restrictions on race or religion or origin, which was unique for his time. But it took years of court cases, you know, chipping away, including cases brought by Franklin's descendants, many of them women, saying, you know, we need to expand what his money could be used for here to include women. And it did. I think for myself, the the lesson is something that Franklin wrote about in his memoir, which is that those with the least usually give the most, percentage-wise. And that he preferred to be anonymous in his philanthropy because he said, if you slap your name on something, it doesn't encourage other people to give money to it because it's just for your benefit, right? And so we could have the Franklin University and the Franklin Library and the Franklin Fire Brigade and so forth, but we don't. He didn't want his name on those things. And so one thing I've thought about with my own legacy going forward as someone who doesn't have a lot of money is that Franklin also knew that a little can go a long way and that those $5 donations and those $10 donations and those $100 donations from many people are sometimes more useful to an organization or an idea than a $1 million one-off that just gets spent and then you go, well, who's checking up on it? And so it's made me think a lot about parceling out money in small doses and perhaps in ways that can be released at 50-year intervals or 75-year intervals. But again, this takes a lot of planning and we need a manager or an heir who's willing to take this on.
1: Let's close by asking you to mention a few things about Ben Franklin that maybe you think most people don't know about. And I'll actually go first by mentioning some things I learned from your book. So, First of all, I didn't know that Franklin was such a strong swimmer and that he he used to swim for miles with a suitcase of books on his back so that he'd be able to survive a shipwreck. Uh, and that he also invented swim fins and was posthumously inducted into the International Swimming Hall of Fame, which I think is hilarious. Um, Franklin is known as the father of the Foreign Service, and between 1757 and 1785, he only spent three years on American soil. The rest of that time was in England and France. Um, and like you said, he co-founded the nation's first hospital, um, still in operation today because he believed that every American should have quality health care regardless of income. So those are my few things. What, what would you say are some things that most people probably don't know about Ben Franklin? He was very insecure.
0: And I think when I was working on this book and reading his letters, all of which are available online, we have a wonderful archive at Library of Congress called Founders Online and the National Archives, excuse me. Uh, you can access these and you can search by keyword. I was shocked at how insecure he was because he was self-taught. He only had two years of formal schooling as quite a young person. Schooling was free at that time if you were a male, um, but he couldn't afford the textbooks. And I was just struck by throughout his life, he's always looking for a pat on the back from father from his older brother from Deborah from his sister Jane do you see what I did and you really feel his pain when he writes to his older brother James for example and he doesn't get a response or at least one that survives uh, I was also surprised that the kite experiment he wrote about that as if someone else had done it you know he and he wrote about it months later it was a friend in England Joseph Priestley the man who's credited with the discovery of oxygen or at least with fizzy water that we drink today um, Priestley you know popularized it widely in the british press when franklin wrote about it in the united in, in the americas um you know he said it was it's it's very easy anyone could do it and i thought but yeah until you no one had you know that that's really remarkable to me um Yeah, those are the things I think about his personal thing. And the the last thing, because I'm a writing teacher here at the University of Pittsburgh, you know, he taught himself to write the same way I urge my students to learn to write, which is he pulls down great books from the shelf and copies them. And he gets his feeling in his hand for what that writer is doing. And then he closes the book and he tries to remember what the writer wrote. And then he tries to write it himself. And he often finds that he's improving the text. And in that way, he's finding his own voice. He's making different choices and that impresses me a great deal. He's very modern in that way.
1: Yes, he he's obviously loved books. He helped found libraries and when he passed away, he had more than 4,000 books in his estate. Well, Michael Meyer, this has been a fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
0: As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.